Hi, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Annie, I miss you. I miss you probably <laughs> just as much as you miss me. We, we had a very fun time, and we actually went out to an outdoor restaurant, which I guess shall remain nameless. Let's just say it's a restaurant that is inside of a hotel. That we are both frequent guests of. Frequent guests and customers of. I've never seen Annie get riled up like this, but I'm going to set the scene. We're waiting for our table. We're 15 minutes late for our reservation because we're picking up our friend who just got out of physical therapy rehab because he broke his hip. So he's like barely able to move. And we went to go pick him up and like take him out because he's been like sitting alone in the dark for weeks. And we're waiting for our table. We're in the lobby with our masks on. And I hear like a party come behind me and go to the host stand. And um, a large party, a large party come up to the host stand. And the hostess takes like one of those infrared thermometers and like holds it up to their head and like clicks it on each one of them. And then she goes to like the last one who's who was wearing a mask that like looks like a G-string. It's it It was made of pantyhose. <laughs> My opaque tights were more like opaque than that mask. And she's like 100.1. Um you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And so I hear that behind me. And I'm like what the fuck? I'm like any that woman just got in with a 100.1 fever. Meanwhile, I'm freaking out because the party that she waltzed in with is sitting next to us and they all take their masks off inside. <laughs> so they all have their masks off. They're all like, go oh, phew, got in, got in. And we're like, this is like a public health disaster. This is like irresponsible. Annie like runs to the front desk and she's like, excuse me, sir. <laughs> excuse me, sir. That woman had like a hundred and something fever and like the hostess like let her in. Like, what is this? Like that shouldn't be allowed. And they all, and they're all sitting over there without their masks on. And so the... I'm going nuts. I'm like, is this some bizarro world? I'm like, I was just on a plane with a fucking face shield and rubber gloves for like eight hours. So um, the guy at the front desk goes over to speak to the hostess. And then the hostess comes over to us. And she is like ready for a fight in this really bizarre way in which like, I've never, I've never been spoken to like this but she basically comes over and she's like okay so i heard you guys are like have a concern and we're like yeah we have a concern like you let in someone who had 100.1 fever and she was like well actually per the cdc guidelines the cutoff for like fevers is 100.4 and i was like and she had 100.1 and um and the hostess was like yeah and i was like does that make you feel comfortable working here? And she was like, yeah, it does actually. And you know, like, uh, you know how it works actually, like some people run hot and some people don't run hot. And so she could have like walked here and like this bitch was wearing like a <laughs> mini skirt and five inch heels. Like she didn't walk here. Where did she walk? Oh, we forgot In to Los tell Angeles. the part that like made me get up and like say something was this woman was just like. I think she knew. I think she knew. I think she was trying to <laughs> upset people because after she, her temperature was above 100 degrees, which is already an issue, she takes off her pantyhose mask <laughs> below her chin. She takes out a pot of lip gloss. I'm not talking about one with like an applicator, one that requires you to dip your finger into it. She, she dips her finger into it and starts applying lip gloss. And then she starts shaking hands with people. <laughs> 
And so as our friend with the broken hip said she, to the hostess, he was like, honestly, like if anyone has COVID, it's definitely her. And but anyway, so the hostess is like talking to us and like telling me all about how people run hot and people run cold. And I'm like, I think we're like missing the point here, which is that someone with an elevated temperature is now maskless in this establishment. And she was just inc- so incredibly rude. I was I didn't even say anything because I was so shocked that she was talking to me like this. And then I went to like another guy at the hotel and I was like, you know, I'm a very frequent customer here. And like, I just really, <laughs> I don't know. We both, we both. And then I realized my name moment. was on the reservation. Yep. So I'm the one who looks like <laughs> they're going to yes. like yes. Google after this. <laughs> um, so that was our COVID dining experience. Though when we did get to the outside dining area, it was like very distanced and pretty. They had plexi between tables. Yeah, it was like pretty safe, but it did not make us feel safe at the beginning. Should we get into top yeah. stories? Yeah, we have a lot to cover this week. This is actually a story that is near and dear to my heart because John Fairchild, who was the publisher and editor-in-chief of Women's Wear Daily from like 1960 through the 90s, which is the trade magazine for the trade newspaper for the fashion industry, he basically told his editors that worked for him that if you saw something three times, that made it a trend. And we saw this thing three times, so it's officially a trend. And that is celebrities being named creative directors of startups. And the punchline being like, you know, of course, the celebrity is not sitting in like a meeting, you know, going over concepts. Like they're obviously like just, you know, being paid to promote the brand and the brand thinks it's like this clever idea to have the celebrity called their creative director. Case in point, Emrata was announced to be the creative director of this face mask brand called Loops, which looks to be like those plastic, I guess they're plastic, right? Those like jelly type texture. Hydrogel, yeah. Hydrogel, hydrogel. masks, uh, face masks. Emrata is the quote unquote creative director, which means obviously that she is being paid to and getting equity probably. Jennifer Aniston this week was announced as the chief creative officer of Vital Proteins, which is like that collagen protein brand. And Dakota Johnson yesterday, which was Wednesday, was announced to be the co-creative director of the sex care brand Maud. But kind of funny because like Dakota Johnson's obviously not, Jennifer Aniston's not sitting in meetings being like, I think it should be like more of a turquoise than a blue. That's not what creative directors do anyway. It's like such a sore subject because there are people that actually, you know, go to design school and actually work their asses off to create brands and have the title creative director, chief creative officer or whatever. And sometimes like those titles don't really mean the same thing at every company. It's not that's not really a thing. But yeah, it is kind of funny that like that's the title that they choose. To me, it's more like a it's like more of like a slap in the face to consumers that they think that we're stupid enough that we would believe that these people are actually like deeply involved in these companies and not just being paid to like promote the brands or like investing in the brands. And like they're just trying to, you know, find a clever way to discuss their involvement. Dakota Johnson, if you haven't seen her Architectural Digest home tour, it is a must-see. Have you seen it, Annie? 
Yes, I'm trying to. She lives in the hills, right? And she has like a cool bathtub in the middle of her bathroom. She has like a really beautiful house, but like it's just the way and like she's really dry and just the way she like describes everything in her house, like everything is a meme, basically. <laughs> she's not describing it like a creative director. <laughs> there's like something, there's a quote and maybe we can play the clip where she talks about like the limes in her kitchen. I love limes. <laughs> I love them. They're great. I love them so much. And I like to present them like this in my house. Anyway, bless them all. We look forward to seeing how they turn these brands around. Yeah, we, like to, we look forward to seeing their mark, uh, Jennifer Aniston, flexing her creative muscles on the Vital Proteins brand. In other news that we need to debunk, mouthwash cannot kill COVID, period. <laughs> Who thought it could? <laughs> well, I mean, there was... No, I mean, it's kind of in that same vein where it's like, yes, sure, bleach can disinfect surfaces, but don't drink it. Right. Mouthwash, technically, it's mostly alcohol. So in theory, yes, it can kill virus particles. But once the virus is in your body, there's not much that mouthwash is going to do in the right. small area of your mouth that, you know, it's it's like, sure, do it. Is virus brush particles your teeth, the, but- um, the technical term? Um, yes. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's virus in fact, bits. <laughs> in fact, look no further for any um, health advice in terms of COVID than this podcast. <laughs> yes. Preliminary findings have come out from a non-peer-reviewed study. So basically, this should have never seen the light of day, this piece of quote-unquote news, saying that over-the-counter mouthwash can reduce levels of coronavirus in patient saliva. Again, this has not been peer-reviewed. They're basically the people conducting the study. They're not even using uh, solid terms here. They're saying that an ingredient used in mouthwash called CPC is showing promising signs of reducing COVID-19. But don't ever for a second think that mouthwash is going to provide any sort of protection against contracting or killing COVID if you have it. I think, you know what? I think people should floss. McDonald's is doing something pretty interesting in the food industry, which is they're creating their own plant-based meat to compete with the Impossible Burgers and the Beyond Meats of the world. It's a cow-free protein. And instead of you know licensing an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Meat, they're actually making their own, and it's called the McPlant. And this is in direct contrast to Burger King, who has a partnership with Impossible Foods. Um, McDonald's is doing it, doing it for their damn selves. They're also doing chicken alternatives from plant materials. To me, the big asterisk with all these plant products is A, they're using soy, and they're like the ways in which like they farm soy are like detrimental to the environment as well. And B, like there are oftentimes like all these additives. Like we were thinking about doing an episode on nugs, you know, the uh Chicken alternative chicken nuggets. The hype beast. Yeah, like the hype beast chicken nuggets. Plant-based chicken nuggets. And we started looking at the ingredients and like in the, and, and they've constantly iterated on the, you know, IL so that it's gotten a little bit cleaner and cleaner as they've advanced the brand and the recipe. But at first it had like titanium dioxide, which is also used as a sunscreen, sunscreen. <laughs> to like create like a whiter meat look and like all these, like it had a lot of weird shitty ingredients in it. So number one, plant-based doesn't mean clean, nor does it mean healthy. I mean, I always like laugh to myself that like you could call pasta plant-based. Plant-based cuisine could be like an Italian restaurant 
And that's not like exactly going to be healthy for you. So I think it's important just to like think about why you're eating or looking for these plant-based alternatives. Like if you're doing it for the environment, I don't know if the answer is necessarily that eating a plant-based burger is better for the environment than eating grass-fed, pastured beef. Maybe it is. And because I know the beef industry is a huge cause of global warming, but I don't know if like the soy industrial complex is also, or which is worse. Nick, I had no idea that you were so on top of the soy issue. I just know, I just like know. You're a soy boy. For guys, soy was like, it was all the rage, like in the 90s, we were all eating tofu and tempeh and all that shit. And then. Edamame. Edamame, eating edamame up the wazoo. Oh wait, can we still, can we eat edamame still? No, I mean like, well, soy for men is not good. Because of. Estrogen because of estrogen. And I think a lot of soy, most soy, readily available soy is genetically modified. Mm-mm-mm. I know. I do. I do love a genetically modified berry. And my well, question hold on, is. Hold on. Hold on. What do you mean a genetically <laughs> modified berry? Because GMOs, since the dawn of agriculture, humans have been genetically modifying their crops. They've been choosing the healthiest plants and crossbreeding them with each other to create their desired outcome when they tend their fields. So I think there obviously is a level of genetic modification that's not okay, but it's kind of a blanket term. Genetically modifying to get like a crisper apple because you are choosing the healthiest plants or whatever they look I'm not a farmer obviously (laughs) um it's different from another way that they genetically modify foods which is like basically like spraying radiation all over all the plants to see like what weird shit grows out of the ground speaking of genetically modified berries you introduced me this weekend this is a little side note to the cotton candy grape Yes. Um, which they sell at Erewhon which is like the bougie grocery store in LA so you know it's good for you but no, what you do know or what you at least assume because it's sold at Erewhon is that these cotton candy grapes were not like engineered to taste like cotton candy. It's like God, our our um, Lord and Savior, she created these cotton candy tasting grapes for us because like they're not genetically modified. It's not like they like crossed cotton candy with a grape. No, they didn't do that. But you love them though, right? Oh my God, they're insane. But like, I just don't understand how there could be something in nature that tastes like cotton candy. Explain that one. I to told me. you it's a coincidence. It's not it's a co- just a There are no coincidences. Okay. Well, what came first, the cotton candy grape or cotton candy? True. We'll never know. Speaking of things that we should be suspicious of when it, in terms of our health and well being, Amazon will be selling prescription medicines soon. And if you purchase them directly through Amazon, not using your insurance, you can expect some deep, deep discounts. My issue is this. I'm not even sure when I buy, I don't know, Jergens on Amazon that it's not a counterfeit. So I'm not going to order my Cymbalta from Amazon and expect it to be like the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it'll be, it'll be different. I think the stuff that is gray market or counterfeit is the stuff like from third party suppliers. And this is like their own in-house brands, I guess, like how they have their own in-house supplement brands. So I think it's like probably pretty trustworthy. I'd also imagine like the hoops that they have to jump through with the FDA are probably significant enough that the product is probably fine. But like they're definitely going to cut 
corners to cut costs. So like, I don't know. I mean, I did find out from a doctor that not all generics are created equal, meaning like, yes, it's generally the same thing, the same medication, but there'll be slight differences. So one could work a little bit better for you than like another from a different manufacturer. And you don't always know what manufacturer you're getting your medication from just because you're getting it at a CVS or a Vaughn's pharmacy or something like that. So the Amazon stuff is going to be a little different. I don't know. I'm just trying to like, I just think the convenience is going to be so great. Oh, I hate how everything that we need in life is being centralized under Amazon, Jeff Bezos. I think it's like very worrisome. We're going to get to the point where people are going to be paid in like Amazon coupons. Like for, it's going to be it. like the coal mining town where it's like the coal miners work all day and then they spend their money at the company store and then yeah. they go and they stay at the company owned, I don't know, lodges or whatever it's called. So I'm happy with Capsule. That's who I use. Yeah, for Capsule is pharmacy. only in New York, though. It's a prescription delivery service, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they don't have it in LA. Oh, they're so good. Okay, well, you know, with all the influence that we have in our little podcast, let me give Capsule a shout out and maybe it'll help them expand. Okay, let's glam it up a bit. Yes. These news stories have been like a little. We've been a little in the so weeds. Fun. Yeah, a little, little uh, technical. So JLo is launching what looks to be, we speculated on this previously several episodes ago, but JLo Beauty is coming out. We have a launch date, 1-1-2021. You can sign up for early access, of course. Just check out their Instagram, JLo Beauty. And it seems like she's hinting at an anti-aging line or at least a line that's going to be marketed not to the TikTok generation, because the tagline in the Instagram bio is beauty has no expiration date, which is actually not true because I. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What is your issue with? Well, Nick, you were the one that was so critical about the beauty products that I keep in a suitcase under my bed. True, 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 true. So technically products do have an expiration date, but true. JLo clearly doesn't. I thought that JLo Beauty was looking to be like a body glow situation because no, it's now your glow has no expiration date. What? Did they just update the tagline like as we've been talking about it? <laughs> They're workshopping it. They're workshopping it. Oh, no. This is like me and my Instagram captions. Jalo, get it together. <laughs> They've been using a few different ones. It's unclear. I'm like now looking at all these pictures. Are you ready to discover your limitless glow? Says one. Two words. That skin. Okay. But And then she has photos on here from... um. Her recent like award show appearance and I follow her makeup artist that listed all the products that she used and there was not a JLo beauty product in sight. What could it be? Yeah, and you're right that like beauty has no expiration date is like I think it's gonna be a I think it's gonna be a serum. <laughs> Do you wanna put money okay. on it? Okay. Well, ten dollars. I say it I say it's uh like glow glow drops. No, you need to be more specific because I feel like a serum's gonna come out and you're gonna be like, Yeah, I said it was glow drops. <laughs> I think it's like a, cosmetic. Like, you think it's a color uh, cosmetic, a cosmetic bronzer. I think it's okay. Like a I think it's going to be an anti aging serum, but of course, anti aging is like not a marketing term that brands use now. So it's going to be like a sexy aging serum. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is in did you know news? Drake has a candle brand. It's called Better World Fragrance House. And people didn't know that he had this, but he's actually had it for a little while. He sells the candles on Revolve, though they are sold out. I want to smell a Drake candle. There was one. I don't know if it's a mistake. I don't know if like maybe somebody put up the PDP in advance and now it just says sold out. But apparently we all missed it if it did already launch. But I was reading a blog post 
this is the cutest thing I think I've ever seen in my life. He made candles and sent them to all of his basketball player friends when they were stuck in the bubble, when they were having to play games in the bubble at Disneyland over the summer. And he he sent them all little notes. The blog post is just kind of like having a little chuckle, like, because Drake is the quote-unquote softest rapper. So, of course, he's sitting at home making candles for his <laughs> friends during, like, quarantine. I'm picturing him, like, dipping, like, the wick over and over again <laughs> to, like, build up the candle. <laughs> anyway, it's called Better World Fragrance House. Can I also speculate on something else with this brand? When I was trying to scour the internet for more information, because it's confusing that there's this PDP on Revolve with the candle for sale. It says sold out, but how can Drake launch a candle line and none of us have heard of it? I Google Better World Fragrances, which is the name of the candle company. And there is an existing brand that sells candles called Better World. So my theory is there is a trademark issue with the name Better World and it's causing a hiccup in their launch plan. What do you Mm -hmm. think? Interesting. I think that's a good point. I mean, yeah. I hope Drake is successful in his candle venture. I think he's the perfect celebrity to have a candle line. Here's a question for readers. Who is your favorite celebrity candle brand? What is your favorite celebrity candle brand? Has anyone tried the Jackie Ina candles? So now there's Drake candles, there's Jackie Ina candles. Gwyneth's vagina made a candle. Yeah, Gwyneth's vagine made a candle. Who else do we have? There has to be more. Oh, uh, Casey Musgraves made a candle with boy smells. Anyway, let us know. Weigh in. UPS, in other news, ends their ban on beards, natural hair, and other gender-specific hairstyles. This is just in via ABC. The changes loosen the previous strict limits on facial hair, which were that you couldn't have a beard for most employees and mustaches could only go to above the crease of your lip. And then there was like rules about how long you could wear your hair and what kind of hairstyles you could have. You couldn't have an afro or braids. You still have to have, quote, business appropriate styles, but specific limits and specific terminology has been eliminated from UPS's, I guess, employee handbook, which is great. UPS said in a statement that these changes reflect our values and desire to have all UPS employees feel comfortable, genuine and authentic while providing service to our customers and interacting with the general public. They're also going on a hiring spree right now. So they're basically saying like, we are not going to be picky assholes anymore because they have to fulfill all these orders with everybody at home for COVID. So yeah, they're basically like casting a wider net and being more inclusive, which is great for a lot of reasons. I mean, it is crazy how up until how recently like hair discrimination, natural hair discrimination was completely acceptable and codified. And it's good that those rules are being repealed because it's so ridiculous and so racist. It is insane that the hair that grows out of your head could not be acceptable for a work. Could be considered quote unprofessional. That's, that's insane. In other news, Revlon seems to be still screwed. Struggling. They are struggling. Megan the Stallion couldn't save them. It's a bit of a mess. It sounds like on the business side of things because Ron Perlman, I think, owns the brand now. Not the actor, the billionaire. The billionaire. There's like, you know, there's that actor, Ron Perlman, who was in Sons of Anarchy. Not him. Not him. And not the actor's daughter. The billionaire's daughter is the CEO of Revlon, which is kind of funny. Yeah. It's like, here you go. Take this company. 
they've been struggling from a brand side. The brands that Revlon has acquired over the years, like Alme and Mitchum and other like brands that you see in the drugstore beauty aisles have also been struggling. They've been trying to unload these brands to pay, I guess, debts. They're in a ton of debt right now. It's just a they, total like, accidentally wired nine hundred million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> to people that they actually did owe money yeah, to and then expected them to give it back. Revlon, yeah. Um, so anyway, they're still screwed. Their exchange offer is expected to close today, which is Friday. You'll be listening to this or tomorrow as we record this. Revlon said that they needed time to see if the conditions were met in order to determine if the exchange... I don't even know what an exchange is. Do you? No, this... Look, we're not savvy enough on the business side of things to really understand how messy it is, but apparently neither are they because they keep on screwing up left and right. Point being, they're struggling. I think this could all be fixed if they got like a hungry, like talented, young creative team that can do relevant things with the physical product. I think they've been doing fine from a marketing perspective in a way. Like you said, they have Megan The Stallion as the face of the brand. They had Cass Bird shooting for them. They had a bunch of like cool young Ashley Graham was also in a bunch of their campaigns last year. But, you know, that doesn't really matter when the products in the end people are interested in. So they really need a lot of product innovation to, I think, turn the brand around. And it doesn't really sound like that's what they're focused on right now. In similar news, Cody is selling its professional division. This is also via Women's Wear Daily. Their professional division includes Wella, OPI, Clairol, and they're selling that group of brands to a company called KKR, and it is being sold for $2.5 billion. Cody will still maintain, I guess, like 40%. So it's more of like a partnership than like a flat out, like here, take this off our hands. I feel like Cody is now a company to watch. They have a new CEO, Sue Nabby, who's a vet of L'Oreal, and she's really, really, really smart. And I think she's going to be making some really interesting decisions and moves in the next year. In this same article, they dropped like a little hint about a KKW skincare line coming out. Because you know they own KKW, not to be confused with KKR, who acquired yeah. their proof. I thought we already knew that she's doing skin. Oh, okay. Well, that was news to me. <laughs> <laughs> we have a very exciting interview this week with a f- new friend of ours, someone who we're completely obsessed with. He is a fellow podcaster. He is also an actor and a writer. His name is Clark Moore. Clark is actually best known as an actor for his role as Ethan in the film Love, Simon. And then he was also on the final season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He lives in Venice, California. He's from Atlanta, Georgia. He went to Dartmouth. He is incredibly smart and incredibly I don't know. Like he's like a joyful ray of sunshine. Yeah. He's a ray of sunshine. He's like Um, the human Cymbalta. Like I don't even need Amazon prescription. He's awesome. And he just launched a podcast called soul bomb. And so we wanted to talk to him about forging your own path in Hollywood as a self-described queer and black actor. You know, there's not a plethora of roles in Hollywood for him to choose from, for him to go out for. So he's really been making it his mission to create his own platforms, to create his own projects. Soul Bomb is one of them. And we talked a lot about sort of his experience in Hollywood and how he is making it work. Look at us. 
So Clark, you're having a good it. day, but now you're with us. So now it's an even better day. Okay. Thank or, you I was gonna, <laughs> or I was going to say that things could really take a turn. I, to be determined. <laughs> so we have a lot in common, including the fact that we both launched podcasts, I want to say like within a week or so of each other. Yours is Oh, called, did we really? I think so. Yours, okay. When did you launch? We were early September. Oh, no. We were um, June. Wow. Okay. And he's already so much more successful I than know. us. I know. Oh, my God. No, please stop. <laughs> How, what Not what was the true. genesis? Like, first of all. Clark Moore is our guest today. Hi. Clark Moore is an actor. He is an, I want to say an academic because you, Thank you have you. a master's degree or just a double concentration undergrad degree? Undergrad, yeah. Double concentration undergrad. A double concentration undergrad degree. And you are an actor and you are in some ways like a, an advocate for... I feel like a lot of different types of underrepresented people. So I know just on your Instagram, you talk a lot about sort of queer representation in media and how it's been a big part of your mission in in pursuing acting from academics to like add to the movement and see yourself, you know, for kids that are growing up who may look or feel or Mm -hmm. or be like you to then see people like themselves in media. Is that, is that a fair Summary? I think that's that's a very generous one. Yeah, I I sort of fell into. I mean, I've always wanted to be an actor. I started when I was really young, and you know, this industry is so crazy. And sometimes there's space for you, and sometimes there isn't. And I just kind of realized throughout my life that there were no pathways for me. You know, there were no role models to look up to. I mean, there there were some, but the the representation of queer Black people in entertainment is just so incredibly limited. So who was there at the time? I mean, I think of like, one person that has always really stood out to me is Nathan Lee Graham, specifically in his role in Sweet Home Alabama. He's the only gay black man in the movie, but he comes from New York. He has this turtleneck on at all times and this sort of like arched eyebrow. He's Reese Witherspoon's best New York friend, you know? He's like a character actor who the minute you tell me his name and I just looked up a picture of him, you he's in yes. everything. Immediately iconic. Yeah, it's basically oh, yeah. him. And um, I, I remember seeing that movie specifically and thinking, because that sort of combined, it was the first time that I saw myself in the world of all of these, like, 30 to 40 year old white women that I was obsessed with. You know, I was in love with Reese Witherspoon from uh, Legally Blonde and love rom-coms in general. And that was the first time that I really saw myself in a rom-com, in like a mainstream rom-com. And beyond him, it was like RuPaul, Miss J on America's Next Top Model. And that was pretty much it. I mean, I'm probably, I'm sure I'm forgetting people, but the point being that there weren't, it wasn't like there was a, a wealth of resources to draw from. And I didn't really know how I was going to fit in this space. And that was part of the reason why I ended up going to Dartmouth, because my parents are very supportive. But they were like, girl, you have to get a fallback plan. You have to get a degree. We think you're really talented. But like, who knows if there will ever be parts for you in this industry. So yeah, now I just tried to, uh, I lucked into getting a role in Love, Simon a couple of years ago, which gave me a bit of a platform. And now I just try to use that platform for as much good as possible. Were your fears 
real? Did they turn out to be real that that there was going to be a hard time to find a place for you in Hollywood? Yeah, it continues to be a struggle. I mean, I think one of the things that is really difficult is that we don't have the infrastructure. You know, there's this whole sort of machinery that happens around white talent that is really based on the fact that our industry is a comps-based industry. You know, you have to see the success first in order to pitch this new idea. There's no risk-taking. None. And there's almost like fake data that people are pulling from to justify their decisions, right? Like, exactly. I've worked with brands where it's like, oh, but we have, you know, say they have like a full range of models that they cast, all different skin tones, all different backgrounds. And then it's like when they're pulling photos for the ads, you sometimes hear from a marketing person, you know, this blonde white girl with blue eyes just quote unquote performs better. Yeah. And it's like you're just feeding into that same loop. You're not even giving yes. a chance for anybody that looks any differently to, you know, rise to the top of the algorithm. It's like very bizarre. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you're investing. The reason why they perform better is because you invest in them. You know, the the same kind of mentality happens with films from people of color. It's this idea that Black films don't perform well in the States or abroad. And when you really look at that data and you ask yourself why, it's because since you go into that with that assumption at the forefront that Black films don't perform as well. Their budgets are automatically lower. So their marketing budget is lower. Their reach is lower. So then when the Black film does underperform the films that you've put twice as much money into marketing, it then sort of perpetuates the myth from the beginning. You know, these people are And it's are like, how themselves. often are they testing? Exactly. Exactly. You know, like how, like when was the last time they tested like a black model in South Korea for an American beauty brand? Like how often are they like giving it a shot? Probably they did it once 15 years ago. And there are probably a variety of reasons that like it didn't work or maybe it did kind of work. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, it's, it's, it's all kind of fuzzy data. So I, full disclosure, had about a year and a half, I'd say like, yeah, 18 months flirtation with Hollywood in which <laughs> I was like, you know what? I I had like a Yahoo video series where I like would interview celebrities and, and it got really popular on Yahoo. And so yeah. I was like, why don't I like develop a show idea, shop it around and take some generals, which is like mm. the, <laughs> the word, the entertainment industry word for just a meeting with someone you've never met. Like um, a date that yeah. will turn into nothing. It's yeah. a date that will turn into absolutely nothing. Cool. So I've just been having generals this whole time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and basically what I found, and I'm like a gay white guy, is that there was a role for a gay white guy. And that guy was essentially like Brad Gresky or like, yep. you know, a bow tied, bespectacled, you look fabulous type sort of like unscripted reality show kind of contestant Mm -hmm. vibe and the true sort of person that I was which was someone who like had gone to school had a resume of writing and and brand development and all this stuff and who wanted to sort of bring that expertise to an entertainment show you know an entertaining show like people's jaws were on the floor so I can only imagine given the representations of queer black people on tv up until this point the very few that there have been that there is a very even narrower archetype that you've probably, you know, people have attempted to squeeze you into. Is that is that yes. fair? 
I think that's exactly right. And I love that you use the word archetype because that, I think, is what I've diagnosed as the primary issue. You know, so much of the stories that we're telling are really, you know, there's that sort of like that writing cliche that every story can be traced back to a Shakespeare play of some kind. You know, this idea that every story we're telling is a version of a story that's already been told just from a different perspective or from, you know, revisiting the same story, but in a different lens, a different time period. And part of the issue, again, with this sort of legacy way of telling stories is that if the archetype doesn't exist to begin with, it never can sort of break out. You can never develop it. You have to first create the archetype. And so that's actually part of where my, any, you know, continued interest in academia or research beyond just sort of writing scripts for television and film comes from this understanding that we have to first create these archetypes of different types of queer Black people in order for us to then disseminate those archetypes across all types of shows and really dive into nuance. Because exactly in that same way, we are stuck with these very basic one-dimensional representations of queer people of color, of queer people in general. And, you know, we've gotten very comfortable with the Brad Goreski type. We've gotten very comfortable with gay assistants, gay mm-hmm. interns, gay like gay people in service of yeah yes, and it's super exactly. palatable for the established audience that networks yes. or whoever else thinks that they have it's not going yes. to put off the middle america like karen's for mm-hmm. sorry mom my mom's name is karen it's not you <laughs> <laughs> fyi like the karen's live in los angeles county and orange county too yeah they're everywhere yeah. i see them on the street yeah there was a trump rally i guess right outside of a federal building on wilshire that i just passed uh, on the yeah. this interview anyway continue it's a lot yeah no and exactly like desexualized um non-threatening you know and yeah one-dimensional there's no nuance to the characters and so i feel like we're starting to see that expand But because the archetypes don't exist for us to point to, you know, in the way that you can say, I've been watching Gossip Girl lately. So the way you can point to, like, I'm a Blair or I'm a Serena within the men on that show, the differences between Nate, Chuck, Dan, and Eric, like four white guys that are all basically the same. But because we've established the many archetypes for straight white men, we can all know the differences between a Nate and a Chuck and a Nate and a Dan, you know, line them all up. And it's like, it looks like four white guys to me, but we know that those archetypes are fully fleshed out and they're going to, we know how those roles are going to interact with each other in the larger narrative. So we just have a lot of work to do in that regard. And I am out here on the front lines doing it. Who's your like crew that's coming up with you that is sort of helping break down the barriers? I think there are a lot of us. Some of the people that come to mind, Tommy Dorfman, who is a good friend of mine from childhood, an actor, a writer, a model, really like on the front lines with white people for Black Lives Matter and doing a lot of advocacy work and sort of using their privilege to make space for other marginalized people. Alok Vaid Menon, who's a non-binary Uh, poet and performance artist. I mean, I live in awe of them all of the time. They just are like, you want to talk about an academic? They are like fully out here giving you queer theory (laughs) and, you know, deep knowledge. I mean, I, I also shout out 
Greg Berlanti, who is much farther along in this process than I am, but who was the director of Love, Simon, and who really advocated for making space for as many different types of queer people in that film as possible, who really advocated for me as a character to sort of show depth beyond that surface level that we're used to seeing. Was Love, Simon an indie movie or was it a studio? It was Fox 2000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I was wondering about that. Like, it seems like there have been such runaway successes in more like indie films in representing these groups. And then and they're kind of like the case in point. Look, this can work. And then, you know, whether or not like the bigger like studios follow suit. But I guess like that that example didn't work exactly. But (laughs) (laughs) I know. But this one, I mean, that was what this was. It was like the groundbreaking film in that regard, because it was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was the first studio LGBT teen rom-com, you know, that classic high school love story, but told from a gay perspective. Not Um, just a gay friend. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And like many, many gay people, many different types of gay people. So the podcast sort of grew out of your, you know, interest in exploring sort of, it seemingly in... I'm kind of telling you what your podcast grew out of. But actually, you know what? I'm going to stop myself there and ask you to tell me what it grew out of. No, I love it because I also, this is such a great exercise in seeing how other people see the work that you're doing, (laughs) you know, which is so important because you can get caught in the middle of it. It kind of grew out of this feeling of a couple of things. One of the things that happened when that movie came out, when Love, Simon came out, was that I... In my press campaign, you know, I was having these conversations with all these these different outlets, and I was very grateful to be, you know, given the space. But they were kind of looking to me as this queer theory expert, you know? And I was like, oh, this is really interesting that you... S-. And then there was also this element of, you know, people sort of kept calling my character the femme gay character... And I think that means something different to a lot of different people. And for me, it kind of meant more like I am effeminate or like feminine leaning. You know, I sort of embrace elements of femininity in my personality. For some people, it meant like non-binary, trans, you know, I think it it kind of got confused or conflated or like through tele like a game of telephone it was like so the new trans star of love simon you're like wait 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 these are not my pronouns this is not this is not my narrative this is not my story and it became this really interesting high wire act that i was walking of not wanting to offend anyone and also not wanting to change the way people were seeing the character in the film i didn't go into the film thinking the character was trans, but I also didn't want to take that away from someone who saw themselves in the character in that way, because obviously so many of these things are fluid and constantly changing, and the fact that we have hard and fast rules and labels on them can help, but it can also make things much more complicated. So I kind of found myself interrogating this central question that I've been interrogating for my entire life, which is this, how do we reconcile the dissonance between our chosen identity, the way we see ourselves, 
and our perceived identity, the way people see us. And it's something that I've had to deal with as a Black person in America, obviously, as a Black person in the South growing up, and also as a gay person and someone who inhabits both of those worlds at the same time. And so I started to reach out to my friends and I saw that they were dealing with these kinds of questions as well. It might not have been being gay and Black, but it might have been, how do I communicate my adulthood to my parents? You know, how do I navigate my career? How do I advocate for myself when people see me one way, but I want to be seen another way? And like, how am I processing the anxiety and the stress that comes with all of negotiating all of these things at the same time? And there were just sort of like organic conversations I was having with friends because I'm a Pisces and I love to go deep right away. (laughs) So I just was like, let's monetize this. Let's (laughs) turn it into a job. (laughs) And so it's called Soul Bomb because... So that was definitely an outgrowth of the pandemic. One thing that's funny, as y'all know, in this industry, things happen in their own time. And so we were developing the show for the past two years, actually. But once the pandemic hit, and we were kind of looking around at the social unrest, like the Black Lives Matter conversations, when really during that time when you couldn't scroll without seeing Black Lives Matter, it was like, Every single post was Black Lives Matter, like mid-June. And I remember turning to my producer, Simone, and saying, like, how do we keep this going? How do we incorporate these conversations into, like, the core of what we're doing, not just have it be kind of like an outgrowth? And the thing that immediately came to mind was if we're going to continue doing this work, and especially beyond the Trump presidency into this new America that we're looking forward to, it's going to require that we take care of ourselves along the way. And so I started thinking of, you know, things that were making me feel good, like serums and creams and oils. And I thought about like cocoa butter and coconut oil and shea butter. And I just thought of that feeling. I mean, y'all know this from the beauty space, that feeling of putting on a good moisturizer, you know, feeling like you're chapped and you just need a cream And that's how I found Soul Balm, you know, just like a moisturizer for your soul, for your spirit. I like that. And it also, I feel like, you know, Annie and I talk about on this podcast, and sometimes we cut it out because we talk about it too much, but just the way in which (laughs) like beauty and caring about beauty and loving beauty and buying beauty can seem really stupid. But I think sort of at its core for me and for Annie, uh, there is this element of this emotional experience you have with the product where you feel one way you interact with the product, whether it's you put it on, you put it through your hair, whatever you do, and and you feel a little bit different. And it's even, and it has to do with like the package, you know, from the packaging to the, you know, shopping cart, you know, like there, there's so many ways in which, you know, your interaction with the beauty industry affects you emotionally. That, um, that is certainly why we are involved in it. Um, And I think that that's a really interesting it's really interesting to hear that you sort of like were were thinking that almost without knowing you were thinking that. Yeah, and then and then sort of that became the natural direction for all of our, you know, creative decisions and our assets and everything were sort of like pulling directly from beauty. For that exact reason, yeah, it it's it's also identity affirming, you know, it just sort of I looking at ways that taking care of the vessel, the physical experience, helps your mental health 
and how you can almost reframe any activity into one of self-care and then your relationship with it immediately becomes deepened, you know? And I think like, for example, one of the things that I always struggle with, this is so silly, but one of the things I always struggle with is flossing. My mother is a dentist, so she will hate to hear this, but I just like cannot bring myself to floss every day. I don't know why. Literally Clark and Mrs. Moore earmuffs, nobody (laughs) flosses. Nobody flosses. But it's so like, once I shifted it to an act of self-care, you know, I make space to really take care of myself in this very specific way. It became immediately easier. I'm, I'm not doing it every single day still, but I do it more frequently and I enjoy the process more. And so this podcast kind of made me look at all the elements of my life, the things that I'm really like wrestling with and my dog actually being another good example of like walking down the street and he just wants to stop at every single tree. And I'm like, I just want to go. I just want to, I don't want to stop. I don't want to wait. And having this realization that obviously that relationship that I have with my dog on my walk is a manifestation of the frustration I feel in my life in general, when I feel stuck in my career, you know, and I'm kind of like, oh, right, this isn't about my dog. This is about something else. I can take a step back and really enjoy this experience, let him smell every fucking rose along the walk. You know, it's his only time to get out of the house, let him have this experience. Um, And so anyway, the podcast has helped me really recontextualize all of these elements of my life. Uh, And and beauty is really at the center of that. That is a perfect segue into a flash round of your go-to products. So Ooh. you, what is, it's a little hard to tell whether your hair is pulled back or whether yes. it's short. It's pulled back. Okay. So what do you, where are you with your hair and what do you do and what do you use? Yeah, let's go from yeah. top down. Yeah. So today we are doing, it's pulled back because I'm doing a hydrating mask. I do this Cantu deep conditioning mask of uh, like once a week, once every other week to keep it moisturized and keep the curls happy and healthy. I actually use Pantene Pro-V for my shampoo. And then the conditioner that I use is the Pantene Curl Activating Conditioner or Curl Defining. And I switch between that and the more expensive Pattern Beauty products, Mm -hmm. which are Tracy Ellis Ross's company. Do you find a difference when you use Pantene versus Tracy Ellis Ross, the pattern stuff? So I don't want to speak ill of Tracy because I don't have any evidence of this, but anecdotally, a friend of mine was worried that the pattern shampoo and conditioner might lead to hair loss because there was, I guess they use the same, there's some connection to another product that did cause that. Like it's the same. Like the co-wash stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like Chaz Dean or something. I don't when. know. When? When? Yeah, maybe. When. Yep. Yes. Yeah. The house that Chaz built. Mm. Yes. The house of and cards I feel like that Chaz built. <laughs> Was there some hair the loss there? The house of golden retrievers that Chaz built. <laughs> yeah. So Chaz Dean, famously a client on the Bravo show Flipping Out, basically took conditioner. I mean, Chaz Dean was a Much mega star. That. But I think that was his launching pad. Okay, well. Um, he he my, took, Certainly my introduction to Yeah, him. he took, essentially he took conditioner and basically said that just wash your hair with conditioner instead of shampoo and mm. it like will get 
the grease out of your hair, but it'll also like leave it soft and silky. I'm paraphrasing because I've never tried when. And I think what happened, and I was reading an article about this a few weeks ago, is that if you're not actually washing, meaning like with some sort of a surfactant, whether it's a natural surfactant or a chemical surfactant, you're not actually scrubbing the the root, the follow the hair follicle at the root. And mm. it can cause it can cause buildup, which would then result in hair loss or okay. in less than healthy hair. So you like there is there is a reason why you should be using some sort of a soap, essentially, right. to strip right. uh, to 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 get rid of the gunk at the bottom at the root of your hair. I think. Okay, okay. So then, in that case, my fear is completely unfounded. Basically, my friend was like, "You're going to lose your hair," and then I got nervous, so I started going off and on between pattern and pantene because hers is a co- it's like a conditioner wash it's not a shampoo no she has both i think oh, what yeah. it was is that they use the same manufacturer or something oh. we should definitely fact check that but there's some connection that interesting my friend either made or someone else you know grapevine but this also gets into like beauty in general and my relationship to it which is that there's so much misinformation and there's so much like anecdotal you know this mm-hmm. worked for me or this didn't work for me and it makes it really overwhelming and so i kind yes. of like i'm constantly looking for a solution to all of these problems rather than like it's an active process rather than sort of feeling like I've landed somewhere. But then the other element of that is Pantene is significantly less expensive. I was going to say, yeah. Pattern. <laughs> yeah. So I just rediscovered Head and Shoulders two in one, which mm-hmm. I've been using on my hair. And I, a hairstylist that I really respect and trust was like, it's all I use and it's amazing. It has mm. sulfates, it has fragrance, it has everything you don't theoretically want in your hair but it you know what right. it works okay That's so the face. Thing. what about face yes okay so then face i use primarily i'm not a huge face washer i kind of use warm water in the shower and a clean washcloth to exfoliate and then i've got a little bit of a scruff going on today but usually shaving kind of exfoliates naturally this part of my face when i'm breaking out i use there's a Clearasil like 12 hour acne treatment thing where you can put it on the pimple and it literally disappears the next day. And that is like a TV film secret for you because I learned it from a hair and makeup person. I literally had this massive pimple in the front of my forehead the day before shooting this show that I did for Snapchat called Coed. And she was like, go get the clear sill. I went, I put it on the next morning. It was like it had never even existed. It was fantastic. Oh, you have such self-control. I would have just gone in and tried to get all the gunk out. I know. I can't pop them. It really stresses me out. And the idea of having like a hole in my face really makes me nervous. And then scarring too. I I get worried about, because sometimes when I get pimples, I get like discoloration Mm -hmm. around them. Yeah. And then for that, I use Murad. It's like a dark spot corrector. And that is magic, too. So that's your hyperpigmentation. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you address that. And then I know you do dabble with color cosmetics, right? Mm-hmm. So every now and then I'll do... I'm, I'm not wearing anything today, but sometimes I'll do like a... I have a Lancome foundation that I've had for years that is perfect. I love it. It has SPF in it as well. Um, and, and then I use milk cheek stain, 
Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like an orangey pink. I can't remember what the color is called, but I like that because it makes me feel youthful, you know, just mm-hmm. sort of like, w- like I ran here and I'm like, <gasps> for so long, blush had such a bad rap. It was like the most boring makeup product. And now I think it's like people are doing the most innovative stuff with blush. Totally. It makes you look like you're alive, you know, mm-hmm. it just makes you look here. Did you get the Lancome Foundation? Was that a makeup artist recommendation, like from set? No, that was from, like, I went to the Nordstrom at the Grove okay, and found a Black girl working in the beauty department and was like, I need a whole face. And that's what she gave me. That was like the base. Because yeah. we had Yasser Lester on, who's a comedian, mm-hmm. and we had him try like a men's branded makeup line that was launching this year and we weren't expecting him to be so knowledgeable about product and he surprised oh, wow. us by saying like oh yeah i have a whole like drawer of foundations back here that i like got yeah. from the makeup artist <laughs> in the trailer but yeah you pick up the hand. tricks he was, he was like sometimes i go to set and they like use the wrong one and it makes me break out so i bring my own foundation <laughs> yeah i mean that's honestly another part of being a person of color in this industry i mean a lot of people have their own relationship to makeup and they bring their own stuff but for us there have been so many times where i show up and they like don't have the right color or have no idea how to do depth on my face, you know, and they just sort of like put one color on the whole thing and they're like, great, you're done. And then I look crazy. Everyone else looks normal and I look insane. And so you kind of just learn to show up. I always bring my own makeup with me just in case, you know, to show up camera ready as much as you can. I try to show up with my hair done or at least close to done. I let them do the face, but yeah, you just always have to have the backup. Yeah. Well, that also is the same thing, I think, with a lot of makeup artists not knowing how to do men, just period. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, I've gotten either, like, contoured, like, <laughs> in a really insane way, or they'll just, like, put foundation and, like, take out all the angles and shadows on your face, and then you look insane as well. So, yeah. Um, and I'm basing this on literally one experience that I had when I did uh, Good Morning America <laughs> one time, and, like, the pageant makeup artist basically made me look insane. Yeah, it's a real concern. It really is. And okay, so then beyond the face, so what like yes. body, what uh, like what are we washing with? Washing, I'm just Dove, like just Dove, um, like a bar. No, I like the pump. I like the body wash. Oh, like the creamy one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then lotion. I lotion. I moisturize my whole body every single day. Usually, it's Jergens Shea Butter or Jergens Hydrating Coconut. Occasionally, I have these specialty products for various parts of my body. Like, I have these Peter Thomas Roth gel masks that a friend of mine gave me that have just lasted forever. They're in my refrigerator. And, like, an anti-aging cleanser that I like from Peter Thomas Roth. And then Kiehl's. I love any Kiehl's product. I like their face moisturizer as well. I'm very big on face moisturizer every single day with SPF. That's my like number one. What's your SPF? It's in my Kiehl's multi correct, super multi corrective anti aging something. It comes in a purple little container and it has like beach something, beach tree. Is that a smell? <laughs> no. <laughs> it sounds like you're just like connected two words. Like. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It smells Which is really what most good. makeup and cosmetics marketing is. <laughs> totally. <Pepper> plant. <laughs> <laughs> it smells good. It feels good. And it has SPF. 
There you go. And that's, and so you're like, I mean, and I know this is a joke that we've had for a while, but like, uh, you're actually pretty low maintenance. I really am. I would like to be higher maintenance. You know, I would love to be the person that has a full kit and has all these different things for all these different, but I just don't have the energy for it. You know, I, like coming back to flossing, there are very few things that I will do every single day. So in order for me to put it into my routine, it has to be easy and it has to kind of like check a number of boxes. You know, like I love the fact that my moisturizer makes me feel good and protects me from the sun. You know, I can't have like 10 different products every single day. I can't. It just is too much. So you have the podcast, which is in its infancy. And what else are you working on? That is kind of the only thing in production at the moment. I'm, I have all of these things in development and I'm constantly writing, but I just sort of, that was another reason why I wanted to do the pod in the first place. I just got to a point where these roles kind of pop up as they do. You know, there's no way to really forecast and even having a full understanding of the landscape and having, you know, representation that's actively pitching me, it's still just, you know, there are not a ton of, I'm not like going out for hundreds of parts a year, you know? And so I've had to now make a relationship with my work and my career where it's kind of like, you just kind of work on the thing that's happening while it's happening and you like leave the thing over there to simmer, you know? Yeah. And so I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm auditioning constantly and I'm developing shows which take forever. Like this industry moves so slowly. So I'm hoping that things will pop off very soon. But at the moment, the podcast is kind of like the thing that keeps me going. Do you feel that post Me Too sort of, we'll say mid to hopefully a an end of like a Trumpism and sort of the post sort of identity politics kind of world that we're starting to live in. Are they greenlighting everything with a queer black person left and right? Like are studios or executives or producers trying to make up for lost time? Or is that what do you see changing? It's so hard to answer because the problems are so systemic. It's so deeply rooted. Long story short, sort of Yes, I do see progress. I do see growth. The fact that I'm able to have a career at all, I believe, is evidence of that progress. But the thing that I keep seeing happening now is that they know that there is this mandate. Like there's, and, and in fact, sometimes there are literal mandates, like memos that are sent out to the entire company or that the company sends out to any creative that they're, you know, working with or sourcing content from. They are actively looking for stories like that. The problem is that so much of this work is gut instinct. And it's kind of like you read a script or you hear a story and you're like, I know that's going to work because it, because, you know, point to any number of examples where it worked before. Or you just kind of have this gut reaction to it because I don't know, there's something about this story that I relate to. And what happens is that when they read stories from people that have perspectives that aren't their own, they don't have 
Sometimes they do, but but generally you're not going to connect with it as strongly as you would with something from your own perspective. And so when we're talking about straight white men who are in these positions of power, who are used to reading, who are used to living in a world and a sort of like content space that is set up for them, truly created for them, when they see something that isn't made for them, there is part of their brain that's just kind of like, I don't get it, you know, like, which makes sense. When I see stories from other people's perspectives, I'm like, ah, I kind of see. I, have I, done I think you're the- giving. I think you're giving straight white men too much leeway. <laughs> like you were watching Sweet Home Alabama, which is right. like and like I and loving it and identifying with it in various ways. And like Reese Witherspoon and you are like very different from the perspective yes. of origin and identity and all of that and i don't think it's that big of a stretch like emotion is emotion love is love passion is passion anger is anger you know what i mean like yes you can if you're a good executive or a good development person you should be able to see what's a you know good writing i'll give you an example my dad straight white man is a agent for romance writers so he's Mm. a book agent and he exclusively has female writers And he's the one straight guy at the entire romance writer conference whenever he goes to these conferences. And it's kind of funny, but and people always ask him, like, do you like reading these? Like, you know, why are you like what you do? Read them. You read romance all day. Like, that's kind of funny. And he was like, honestly, good. (laughs) Right. You know, I only represent good writers. I love writing. I love reading. And good writing is good writing, whether you're writing about, you know, 19th century aristocrats or you're, you know, like writing about alien love triangles or whatever it is like it's good writing so i think i don't know i think there must be something else that's that is holding up development of these stories because it does seem like there should there is a mandate there is this sort of feeling of oh fuck we have to be woke you know we have to we have to have all sort of the quote-unquote boxes checked but I don't. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's because yes, what he was saying, like this stuff takes so long to develop. It's yeah. like probably they're still developing this stuff that what has been in development what, yes. for three years? years and years ago. Yeah. I mean, my frame of reference is The Real Housewives, which filmed like three months before they put the TV <laughs> show on. So, like, I in my mind, like TV production works a lot faster. But I think you're probably right. When yeah, it's not for scripted, it can reality. be. Three to five years is a yeah. very like normal timeline, as far as I'm aware, and from and from friends who've had shows. But there's also this other element to that very exercise, which is that we, all of us on this call, have been forced to do those mental gymnastics for our entire lives. You know, we've been forced to look at Sweet Home Alabama and find our way into it because the alternative is that what, you just don't watch any movies, you know? And I think there are people, you know, just like your father, for example, who know, either know they need to do that work or do it naturally. But then I think there's a whole swath of people who don't realize that the fact that something isn't made for them isn't enough of a reason for them to say no to it. You know, the fact that they don't resonate with it or they don't get it. You know, they truly are, these straight white men, deficient in that regard. They have not been required to do that work. And so it's like a muscle, you know, the the mental gymnastics that we do regularly to place ourselves in other people's shoes and perspectives, they just don't have to do it as regularly. In environments, right? Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Even yeah, existing true. in an office full of yeah. white people requires an element of awareness and empathy that um, 
does not re- isn't required of the people who are sort of in the majority. So yeah, I mean, I I see people are really trying, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm able to have conversations at a really high level now that I'm grateful for. But yeah, it's just so slow. So we'll see. And the podcast is available wherever you can get a podcast. Yeah, all the places. It is weekly. Yes. And each week you have you have much more famous guests than we have. Um, <laughs> we love all of our guests. Is that we do true? Love I don't know. Guests, but you had Adam Rippon. Yeah. You had Sweetie. Sweetie. Right. I also had Esther. We you, had, we, you did have Esther Pavisky, who is Esther a friend of the pod. Constantly surprising yes. me. I asked her for a Mark Marin hookup, and she was like, oh, you know, I did a show. Yeah. <laughs> Esther is OG. Like, she has been in it for a long time. She is a proper comedian. You know, she, I'm, she's one of the people that I'm referencing in terms of making a TV show. She had her own show that she was the star, creator, executive producer, showrunner. You know, she's done it all. Yeah, I mean that's like I mean, honest like the end of to put a pin in the the story of my brief stint in entertainment was that basically my manager <laughs> was like you're going to have to make your own fucking thing. And here yeah. we are. <laughs> and here, here we, we are. are. That's it. That's what it is. And I am sort of coming to that space as well, realizing uh, you know, if people tap you on the shoulder, that's really great and I'm open to receiving those gifts, but the reality is making your own thing. It's 10 times harder, but it's also 10 times more rewarding. And so I would much rather be walking this path than the other one, I think. So if people do want to tap you on the shoulder and give you a job, where should they find you? Yeah, tap away. I'm at Mr. Clark Moore on all platforms. And the DMs are open. Nick, what time is it? It is time for product of the mother effing week. Would you like to go first or do you want me to? I'd love to go first. My product of the week is a fragrance. And I know we've been on a bit of a fragrance kick for the last few weeks with our guests. And this is a diptyque fragrance. They now have not only candles, but they have, you know, all sorts of like home smelling things and fragrances. And they had at a certain point skin. I think they still do have skincare. But anyway, this is a fragrance. It's a new fragrance for Diptyque. It's called Eau Capital. And it is a perfect, perfect winter, cozy, creamy, kind of mysterious fragrance. It is roses and bergamot and berries and patchouli. This is what I like. I like like a floral mixed with a patchouli, like something floral with a little bit of a earthy undertone. And that's what you're getting with Eau Capital. It's actually inspired by the capital of France, Paris, and it does feel very sophisticated. But to me, it's like just very cozy. Like you can kind of spray it all over a sweater. Uh, I actually wore it last night. And when I hugged my husband, when, when he got home, he was like, oh my God, what the hell do you smell like? And it was this fragrance. I love it. And it's also a really pretty you know, gender neutral bottle that looks really Can I nice. See? Yeah. It's just kind of popping into the bottom of the frame. Oh yeah. Nice. Is that like a smoky glass? It's like a, yeah, it has like, it's a kind of smoky glass on its black sides. It'd be a really pretty present. The cap is, is like a nice weight. I'm just like really in, I didn't, I'd never tried Diptyque fragrances and they're really good. It will cost you. It is $180, but you're getting a ton. You're getting 2.5 ounces or 75 ml. So that is this is going to last you quite a long time. Mine is 
My favorite eyebrow tweezers. Do you see them? Oh my God. They're, are they from Japan? No, Nick. <laughs> I'm avoiding anything Japan related for at least another three episodes. These are from also the opposite of Japan, Joanne's Fabric and Crafts. They have tweed their tweezers with like a heart uh, decoration in the middle. It's not. Yeah, it's a decoration. It is a heart shape, but it also has a function because it's it creates the perfect surface for your fingers to like rest on the tweezers. So you have more control as you're plucking your hairs. They are have like a white enamel coating and they're needle nose tweezers. So you can get very specific and pluck just like one hair at a time, which is what I prefer in a tweezer. And I've had them for years and years. Like I said, you get them at Joann's because they're actually not personal care tweezers per se, although there's no like warning label on them. They are quilting tweezers from a company called Dritz Quilting. Dritz? Like D-R-I-T-Z? Exactly. Wow. And yeah, they're $4.89 on Joann's website. And I think they're incredible. I literally use them probably every every other day. Where? Not on your eyebrows, obviously. Yeah. I don't, in high school when I used to like really pluck my eyebrows, I would sit down maybe like once a month and, you know, do a whole session. But now I just do like a little each day. Just, oh, there's a hair here. Like, great. Got it. Now I'm on with my life. It's like pruning your garden. Got it. I love that. Shall we call it? Is that this episode? Next week is Thanksgiving. We have a very special episode with very special guests planned for next week in the spirit of togetherness, but without being physically together in the spirit of generosity. We weren't going to do an episode. I, I, I yeah, was okay. the Grinch. Let's I be was... honest. Annie didn't want to even do an episode. And I was like, you know what? Let's be generous. Because I was thinking everybody's going to be at home with their family and nobody's going to nope. be listening to podcasts. But then I realized that's actually not the case. So with respect to CDC guidelines, we will be releasing an episode and we can't wait to share it with you. I wish we could have all the readers on our show too, oh, which too. is what we're going to, that's going to be our cute name for our listeners is we're going to just call them readers <laughs> since we do it all the time anyway. We literally do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so excited for next week, excited to be with all of you virtually. And with that, we bid you adieu. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at eyewitnessbeauty, or you can write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Don't forget to send us your gift recommendation requests. Remember to send us people that you're stumped on buying gifts for for the holidays. We will be doing a special gift guide episode. And... Just so you know, Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. Our research assistant is, as always, the lovely and talented Alicia Bansall. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, so we'll talk to you then. Bye, Annie. I miss you. I miss you too.